Wow. Do you, do you ever just get off a call and think, oh, wow, I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I don't think I can do Whitney justice, but uh, to very quickly summarize in any way I can, she is founder of Flowerbox. She started her career at Gucci, moved over to Tom Ford, and then has set up this beautiful brand, um, completely disrupted an industry um, and actually improved the customer experience on so many levels for a product that was in such a crowded marketplace and, and some would consider exhausted. I really hope you take away as, as much as I did from this interview. Um, I think she's an absolute superstar. So without further ado, here she is. Whitney, thank you ever so much for joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. I thought the best place to start was, you know, the, the beginning of your career. You know, you've, you've had an amazing introduction into the fashion world, being, you know, assistant to Tom Ford at Gucci. What was the most important thing you learned from that role? I was so lucky. Honestly, I landed a dream job straight out of school. I started as Tom's PA uh, and ended up as senior vice president of communications at Tom Ford. Um, so I left Gucci when he left Gucci. What did I learn? What didn't I learn? I think the most valuable lesson I learned was the importance of hard work, like just total grind and hustle all of the time. Because I think people sort of underestimate how hard people in the fashion world work, but it's a really cutthroat, tough industry. So I uh, cut my teeth, you know, with the best, arguably. I learned, you know, the, the power of a brand and creating a brand and sort of imbuing a product with desire, um, which you can do by telling the story about the product. You know, a pair of shoes is a pair of shoes, but when you picture the lady wearing the shoes and where she's going and what she's doing in the shoes, you create this whole sort of mystique and story around the shoes that, that sort of imbues those shoes with desire. So I think, you know, no one does that better than Tom does. So, you know, the storytelling, I think of the brand. So hopefully a little bit of that rubbed off on me and sort of what I'm trying to tell the stories around flowers. And I think also just saying no, I think, part of creating a really strong brand is all the things you say no to even more than it is the things you say yes to. And my job working for Tom was pretty much the gatekeeper of him and the brand and just saying no, basically my whole job was saying no until the, the right fit, the right feeling, the right, you know, story came along and then it was yes. But I think it's also the discipline of saying no. We all love a gatekeeper, you know, getting past them is, is the biggest challenge and it's the most the most satisfying thing when you eventually do. So it's interesting that the story, I imagine the story was important to you even then. It's the story others weave to you in order in order to get the right connection for the brand. Exactly. And just making sure it stays consistent and coherent and, you know, the, the discipline of just staying on track when a lot of things, you know, become tempting where you're like, oh, well, that could get make a lot of noise, but is it the right kind of noise? So I think just staying really true to the brand. There you are in 2015, you're senior VP for, for Tom Ford. I imagine you've got a really comfortable role, a fantastic, you know, I, I imagine it's a very good salary as well. What on earth made you decide I'm going to leave the comforts of this job that I've, you know, worked my entire career to get to in order to create my own startup? It was literally the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life because I had started my career working for Tom at 23 years old. 
So, so much of my identity and who I thought I was as a, as a grown woman was, oh, that's Whitney. She works for Tom or, oh, Whitney, she's Tom Ford's right hand. So I never felt like I was anyone by myself, which is terrifying. So I felt like if I left Tom and left this career that I, I was leaving a part of my identity. So that was a really big sort of psychological part of leaving the job. Uh, but I think I had one of those now or never moments. I was turning 40. I was pregnant with my third child. I realized I had this idea of creating an online flower delivery service. It was a solution to something in my life that did not exist. And I think the best companies are always like, how come no one's done that before? And you're like, oh yeah. So I, it, I felt like I had that answer for something that hadn't been done before and saw this industry ripe for disruption. So I think it was a perfect storm of all of those things that I was like, if I don't do this now, I'm never doing it. Um, and I could have happily stayed working for Tom, you know, for another 40 years and been totally happy. But it was like, I'm either going to do this now or I'm never doing it. So I think it was a perfect storm and a now or never moment. That's so inspirational. The fact that there's not many people who would say I'm pregnant with my third child. Now is the time to start a business. But the fact that you did and, and you managed to make it work. How did you balance childcare and, uh, and founding a business? <laughs> she's sort of raising herself my daughter uh no but it does sort of somehow get easier the more I, she's my third I think the more children you have the less guilt you carry around there if I'm not with them they're with their family they're with their she's with her brothers they're together looking after each other I think another thing that I found to be very useful is to bring them along on the journey with me so they're really proud of any success I have they're proud that when they're friends, moms, or dads talk about flower box. So I think giving them some ownership in what we're creating, you know, they've helped me hump buckets. They've helped me load vans. They've helped me do installs. They've helped me early, early mornings. They've helped me deliver on Mother's Day. So I think bringing them along on the journey helps them really not resent time I have away from them. But the pregnancy thing, it's one of those moments in life where you stop and you can, it's an opportunity, I think, to change what you're doing because I could go on, you know, maternity leave um, and come back or I could go and not come back. So it was one of those sort of a moment of pause where I was like, I can't go back. That, that's such an amazing story. I, I really like the, uh, I can see what you mean. And, it, and it's a huge, I know it's your third, but it's still a huge moment in your life where actually things change and therefore it's almost acceptable for, for other things to change as well, because there's a lot going on. Exactly. Wow. Um, that, that's so fascinating. I don't think we'll ever have another guest on here that says, so I was, you know, seven months pregnant and I decided now, <laughs> now's my time. Um, I, I really, I really do commend you for that. Um, you describe Flowerbox quite frequently, I've been reading, as digitally native. What, what does digitally native mean to you? Being on an e-com platform is fundamental to the brand and what we're trying to achieve. So there are many florists around the world, but the fact that we were digital before we were even flowers and our, our sort of technology and our platform is more important to me than selling flowers. We could be selling anything through it, but the fact that the there's a smooth like user experience that I wanted it to be when I started Flowerbox to be like Net-A-Porter or Okada or any of the brands that I use all the time where basically you can order at a red light. That slickness was something that I found was so missing in the floral industry. I was always 
spelling out my name, you know, to a florist. I was always misspelled when they, you know, or you'd have to give some embarrassing message to a florist and then, you know, be written in their chicken scratch writing. The whole thing I wanted to be slick from the beginning. So e-com is at the heart of what we do and, and technology is at the heart of what we do. And whether it's flowers or whatever we're selling, it's more that we're selling this smooth digital experience. So you're selling a smooth digital experience. Is that part of your USP or, or what would you define as your champion statement? Extraordinary flowers delivered is our champion statement. Um, but I think that notion of delivery, I, it, that doesn't sort of convey the tech enabled. We're an online flower delivery service that delivers extraordinary quality, extraordinary beauty in a seamless digital way. Does that... Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think that's perfect. I think it, it's very interesting because, as you say, all of these things, anyone who, who develops an e-commerce business, 99% of them, or 99.9% of them are never developing anything new, as in it's a, it's a product that is already available online, but it's what is their differentiating point. And, and I've, I've read your articles where you've talked about how um, your single stem is, is one of the unique things about you. You know, you are you are selling one flower, unlike my flowers here, which is a collection of God knows what. Um, they look great. <laughs> but not quite as good as yours. Thank you very much, Whitney, behind you. But yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the single stem is part of your USP, but actually that's fascinating that you saw how awkward and clunky the existing journey is. And so actually other entrepreneurs or founders, you know, if they're, if they're passionate about an industry and they see that the customer journey isn't there, they could create a business out of that. You know, there is space in the market for someone who has, the correct digital customer experience? Yeah, and also using data. You know, the, the data is a huge part of what we do, which I don't think florists historically have been big on data. We also have, from the onset, been a zero-waste business model. So, And that's technology enables us to not waste. Basically, you order flowers today. We have them cut on your behalf at the growers. They arrive tomorrow morning at our warehouse in London, 4 o'clock in the morning. We recondition them, we do a quality control, and we send them out tomorrow. So literally, you have zero waste, which is makes it much more sustainable than any florist who traditionally waste 45% of what um, is in the store. It's And technology enables us to do that. It's a just-in-time delivery model, which is enabled by technology. It also means that you're getting the freshest flowers that exist. You cannot get fresher flowers. We're also cutting out all of the traditional middlemen steps that historically exist in the floral industry. They go to the Covent Garden market, they sit for two or three days, and they go to the florist shop, and they sit for two or three days, and then they're sold to the consumer. So you're getting a fresher product, you're getting a better product, you're getting a consistent product because it's exactly what you ordered. So you're not getting whatever has left in the shop. You're making a sustainable choice, and all of this is enabled by our, our, our platform and our sort of just-in-time delivery model. Do you think that negative working capital business model is the reason you've grown so fast, even through a pandemic? Oh, it's one of them for sure. It also means that, I mean, it, it's nail biting because, you know, it's a just in time model for a perishable product, which is not easy. If it were easy, one would have done it before. So do I, I think that's what makes us compelling and disruptive as a business model and I do believe it's the future of flowers. What helped us grow during the pandemic, I think, was people shifting to online who traditionally, you know, wouldn't buy flowers online because it was something you go to a flower shop and buy. It was also this, you know, environment where people were spending so much time indoors and 
needed to cheer themselves up and few of life's pleasures were actually available. So buying fresh flowers, like buying beautiful produce, you know, or, or food, it's one of the few things you could do that actually made you happy. But then what I, what we found, you know, and also digging deep into the data is that those new customers, that sort of COVID cohort, they're, they come back and they've kept coming back. Cause I think we've just been like, look how easy this is. You can improve the quality of your life. You can purify your air. You can make your whole home feel so much happier. And then they're like, Oh, oh I like that. That's something I'm going to keep. So I think that's hopefully continues. I'm, I'm sure it will. And, and as you say, you Google and, and all the digital tech providers have provided the data on exactly that, that consumers who switched online during the pandemic, the majority of them are staying online. And actually, they've not returned to the normal practice of going into to bricks and mortar stores. They have been converted. And hopefully that's that's where your customer experience of your website played its huge role of this is so easy. This is so slick. Actually, it saved me walking down to the train station to pick up a bunch did you expand internationally during the pandemic or did you focus in your existing markets? No, I saw a real opportunity, especially in the U.S. when, when you know, the country was closed, that we expanded. We were, we were already in Manhattan, but we expanded across the East Coast of the U.S. during like right in the heart of COVID, like April of 2020. And then we um, launched the West Coast later on last year, um, just because the opportunity was there. So it was definitely not without its challenges, like finding a warehouse on Zoom, hiring a team on Zoom, training on Zoom, but it was the right decision because I think that was where the opportunity was and we had to like, just go for it. Did anyone ever talk to you, Whitney, and say, I, I think you're crazy for trying to do this? <laughs> I mean, between, <laughs> between not only founding this business when you're, you're seven months pregnant but also then now we're expanding in the middle of a pandemic does anyone ever say are you sure well I sort of thought I was crazy but I also <laughs> I've got the most amazing team to be honest and my COO who's based in New York he's very sensible he's very logical he's very practical but he also trust me too. So he, I sort of said to him, we've got to do this. And he's like, okay, like I'm going to make this happen because he's on the ground and he's super operational. So I think having a team that even if you have a harebrained, really far out idea that believes in you and believes in it is key. I don't think, I mean, am I terrified? Yes, all the time. I'm terrified every single day of my life. But if you also don't dream big, then nothing big's ever going to happen. So it also opens up the possibility for colossal failure, which I do know, but it also, you can't have colossal success without having the possibility of colossal failure either. So that's sort of where we are. I think it's really, really fascinating, genuinely. And I think a lot of people will be inspired by it. It, it reminds me of something Holly Tucker, the founder of Not On The High Street, mm -hmm. often talks about with, you are the brand heart. You're the essence of the brand. You understand exactly where it needs to go and what's right and what's wrong for it. And I guess this is where you learned the discipline back in your days at Gucci and at Tom Ford, whereby, you know, no, this is what's right for the brand. And your COO has the pragmatism to trust you on that and trust that you will steer the ship where the brand needs to go. Yes. And, and you know, he's also sort of amazing at then putting a strong foundation and strong sort of systems in place to support it because you can if you have a, 
a million great ideas, you know, they can all easily flop if they're not properly supported. So I'm, I'm super lucky to have a team that helps support the direction and the vision. Perfect balance. You've got your yin and super, your yang. Super like, lucky. Yes. So that sustainability angle in terms of the fact that you're, I mean, I imagine, I can't even imagine actually what the pressure is like with the just-in-time model for flowers, particularly when the big events come up like Mother's Day and, and anniversaries and things. Do you think that sustainability model was fundamental when you founded the business or is that something that then came on later? Oh, it's always been key to what I'm doing. It's it's always been sustainability first and then flowers, mainly because as a mom, it's something that I've been obsessed with and consumed with. I mean, I bought a Prius as our car. Literally, there was like people thought it was a spaceship. It was like 50. I mean, it's sort of the environment and sort of minimizing my environmental impact as a person, as a family. And now as a company, it's always been a huge you know, responsibility. I feel very strongly. So everything from our flower foods, compostable, our packaging has zero plastic, which no one, no one, what I mean, everyone's like, you can't sell flowers without having plastic because you have water and like anywhere you have water and cardboard you need. So we have zero plastic in our packaging. Our packaging is all recyclable. Um, you know, we, we compost all of our green waste. We always have at great expense. And when you're starting a company, if you have to pay for someone to come and take your compost every day, it's expensive. And it, wouldn't be much easier to throw it in the bin, but we didn't. We compost all of our event flowers. So all of this has been key to what we've done from the onset and not just in the past year where all of a sudden everyone's talking about it. It's been sort of core to what we do and how we operate as a company. And and it's obviously going to be a key to your success as well in in terms of people are starting to turn towards it, but you are not only digitally native, but actually you're sustainable native as well. It's something that has been ingrained into the foundations and and I'm imagining now the processes of the business so that that will always be at the heart of what you do. Yeah, Um, we have all electric vans, all of these things that we've done for for ages. I think what we need to do now is... um, properly weave that into the narrative of the brand because I know all the things we do but we don't sort of let our consumers know enough Um, so that's a big priority for us in the next sort of six months. I I think that copy will be really important and um, interesting to see what consumers do as a shift because the majority of flower companies out there don't do that and so actually how much pull does that have and does it make the consumer switch? I'm imagining it will actually um, as, as as you say, the sustainability movement is growing and growing and growing. And I was reading about the, the partnerships that you have, because you obviously have two sides to the business. You have the consumer focusing side, but you also have the brands and events side that you work with, which I guess is more B2B. What's the favorite, your favorite creation or event that you've done so far? Oh, I have so many sort of favorite um, moments. I think the one that was really big, big installation that we did was the facade of Annabelle's in London that sort of went, the second we installed it, um, we worked literally around the clock that night because we only got an okay for the the project like on the Friday and we had it installed on Saturday night or no, on the Thursday maybe. So we, it was, um, again, nail biting. But the moment it went up, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And it just went viral because, I mean, what's more beautiful than Barclay Square covered in flowers? It was totally amazing. So that was one of a great moment. I think another really exciting moment was Valentine's Day last year. Was it last year? I don't know anymore. But um, Tiffany did this huge co-branded uh, flower shop in their flagship on um, Madison Avenue. So 
They did co-branded ribbon, co-branded vans driving around New York City. They hosted a breakfast for Flowerbox and me at Tiffany's. They had, they've never co-branded with anyone in the history of Tiffany. So the fact that this sort of amazing American heritage brand felt that we had built a brand that was strong enough to sit sort of alongside humbly, might I add, Tiffany was just like a real pinch me moment and that they really invested so heavily in creating this flower box shop for their customers was really, I think, a testament to the brand and the strength of the brand that we've created. Wow. that. Unbelievable. I, I can imagine you just standing there thinking this is uh, and your kids must be so proud, you know, when they see things like that pull off, you know, I'm sure they understand why why mommy's working late evenings and and try, trying to make the vision happen. Do those do your contacts and your your network from your past life, do, does it help you when forming those brand partnerships? Or do you believe actually now that Flowerbox has its own identity, it's quite it's quite different? A hundred percent. A hundred percent, all the relationships and the sort of being just friends in, in the fashion industry that completely helped launch the brand. What I find really exciting is in New York and in LA, I'm obviously not there and I'm not pounding the pavements the way I did and definitely pounding the pavements, but not going to every single event, to every single, you know, sort of meeting everyone I can possibly meet in Manhattan on the ground. I'm so excited that the brand is just growing and the B2B is growing really organically because of the strength of the projects that we've done up till now. So I do think a lot of it was because of me, but I think now we're sort of becoming bigger than me, which is the whole point. Is that now your role as founder? Is your role now to find other brands and grow the awareness of Flowerbox or, or how do you see your position? <laughs> I'm everything from like social media manager to um, like on every shoot to, I mean, it's still very sort of bootstrappy. Mm -hmm. I think we seem bigger than we are operationally. So I'm still, you know, if we're short a driver delivering flowers sometimes, um, but I do see <laughs> um, my job evolving very much into um the visionary of the brand and sort of directionally where we're going with it. Obviously the storyteller of the brand, both visually and um, verbally grow, how, you know, growth is very much in my, my domain as far as my responsibilities. So how we grow, how much we grow, we have super aggressive targets. We have outside funding, so we have to hit those targets. So that's very much under my remit. Also, you know, future expansion. So are we going to expand to Asia? Are we going to expand to the Middle East? What does that look like while running a profitable business in, you know, our existing territory? So, yeah, my plate's full. You're spinning quite a few. I don't think yeah. you've got one <laughs> My there. plates are full. Do you, have, do you manage to find time for a life outside of all of this? Well, I sort of love it. I mean, I, I completely love it. I'm sort of not looking for a work-life balance because I... I love my children. I love my husband and I love my job and they all coexist together. So I also have a really terrific husband, which I think is key to have a partner that can help. And I have an amazing nanny who's been our nanny for 14 years. So I think having a team, you know, a team at home and a team at work that can help when the, the balance is off is, is essential. Oh, amazing. But I've now just got to the point where I'm really fascinated. Do you think you'll end up, do you think it will end up being a family business, one that they are involved in all through their career or will that you think they'll go off? I, I don't know. I mean, I really hope it becomes bigger than a family business. I'm not, you know, I hope to be involved for as long as I can add value, but I do hope it becomes 
bigger than that because I think it has the potential to become bigger than that. One of the other comments that I saw you mention is that you read Shoe Dog by uh, Phil Knight and it and it changed your life. So please enlighten us. Can you can you summarize how it changed your life? Oh, it was such an inspiring story. And there's, you know, argu- arguably few bigger, better brands than Nike. I mean, there's Apple, there's Nike, there's, you know, it's one of the most iconic brands in the world. I think what really resonated with me was like the struggle. And I, I like draw on that so often. I also just read That Will Never Work, which was the story of Netflix and how it was just like so ill-fated. Because there's so many days as a founder where people are like, just picking you apart. We also just um, are closing our series A fundraising round. So it's just like endless people telling you, picking apart your business, telling you what's wrong with your business, telling you why it won't work, telling you why the margins aren't good enough, telling you how like all the challenges. So I think that constant sort of, it, it allows me to really persevere and push ahead is knowing that even these great sort of brands have struggled and like the challenges they face. So it does remind me that even if I'm at rock bottom, like <laughs> you know, there, there's hope on the other side. Yeah, and and they've all gone through it. Absolutely, I think it's something that unites entrepreneurs is the challenge and probably the depth of their lows as much as the high of the highs. Exactly, exactly. And like all the times where it just almost like was about to fall apart. I think that I do draw on that quite often. Yeah, resilience has to be one of the most important characteristics of any founder, surely. The ability to keep going when the whole world is telling you no. Yes. Um, As I say, Holly Tucker's podcast last week was really interesting because she said every meeting with venture capitalists she went into, they said, this is a cute little crafts business, but actually it's never going to work. And it's not on the high street. Oh, I can't wait to listen to that. I had that too. I had cute and compelling, but... um didn't have a sound business. And I was like, oh, I'll show you cute and compelling. Watch this. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a quote right there. I will show you. Um, Fascinating. Really, it's been such a interesting conversation, actually. And I always, I hate to use the word interesting because I think it's so bland, but clearly the brand you have created, and I, I guess all of that branding experience, being in those big brands from early on in your career, really did help you understand how to create one, how to create one in a, in a luxury market to stand the tests, to stand the tests of investors knocking you down, stand the tests of, you know, other people or other stakeholders in the business saying, no, this isn't quite right. You've stayed pure and actually Flowerbox is a huge success. Well, I had not yet, not yet, but I hope so. It's on I mean, way. any I business hope- that grows 700% year on year, Okay, you're not at the height of your success yet, but that's a successful business. Yeah, we're still loss making in the US. So I don't know. I I feel like it won't be successful until me, until we're growing and hitting profit consistently. And and, and. there's sort of a number of milestones until until we're a household name. I won't. That's hilarious. Every single founder I've interviewed, none of them are happy. Like all of them are like, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And I don't think they'll ever be there. I'm, I don't either. And I feel like, I know, I, yeah, that to me, we're not, we're not even close to where I see us going. But I do think it's important to celebrate small successes, which, which I do, but I'm not, I'm just getting started. What do you think, um, this is, a lot of businesses go through Serie A funding and, and really struggle or find it challenging. What's the one thing you wish you'd known? 
Oh, there's so many things I wish I'd known. I don't know, because it's all very much the journey is part of, I, I, there's not, I sort of feel like I needed to go through everything I've gone through to get to be where I am. I know that's sort of a cop-out answer, but it's true. So I, what do I wish I'd known? I think to fail faster, to really not try to bang my head against the wall and make things work that aren't working to stop conversations earlier, especially in fundraising that didn't feel right. And I sort of knew in my gut they weren't right, but I sort of, you know, it was money and a lot of money and I wanted it to happen. I think being really confident in what you're doing is key. So I did, I did feel my confidence sort of shaken throughout this funding round because I'm like, am I making the wrong decision? Because I feel such a responsibility to our shareholders and to the team so I turned around, turned away a few things that didn't feel right. In hindsight, now it's all worked out. But then there were moments over the past three or four months where I'm like, what did I do? What I can't believe I just turned that away. What if I, you know, that was to the detriment of the business. So I think hindsight's always of course, much easier. But I think fail faster. I think if something doesn't feel right intuitively and in your gut, don't even have the conversation and don't waste months having the conversation. I think your insight has shown that just the founder is the essence of the brand. And actually you've got to be completely confident. You've got to believe in the, in the direction it's going in and, and believe in the people that are coming into the business. Cause inevitably as you grow, more and more people are going to come in, but you've got to, you've got to trust your gut because actually this is your baby. This is your project, you know, your business. And if it doesn't feel right, it's probably because it's not right. Yeah. It's just very hard to do that when you're also in a situation where you need money to grow, the, you know, to even continue to operate. So it's hard to keep that conviction. I, I did. And I'm happy I did. But I think I would tell myself to, to trust your gut and, you know, stay true to what you started to do in the first place. And also just don't work with jerks because there were so many jerks I've met along the way in the past like five or six months where I'm like, phew, I dodged a bullet on that one. Yeah. So I think, you know, Mark Seba, who was our chairman for he sadly, you know, devastatingly passed away, but he's like, your cap table is your club. Don't let anyone invest in flower box. That's not someone who you want in your club that you want that's on your side that has your back. And there's real temptation to, take money from anyone. But I think that's some really sound advice that he gave me. And I've definitely applied during this, this recent fundraising round. That's really fascinating. Luca, our CEO, when I first started at Genie Goals, gave me some very similar advice. And he said, Hannah, we don't want to work with ourselves. And so quite <laughs> frankly, if someone is one, we don't want them. Like, no, totally true. Them. We don't need the money that desperately. Like, e even if we feel like we do, it's not worth it because it won't work out in the long run and you will only damage the brand by doing it. So, so yeah, it, it, it works both ways. Totally. So last question is we ask each person who comes on what their favorite, other than their own brand, what their favorite brand is in the e-commerce space right now. It's impossible, I think, to pick a favorite brand in the e-commerce space. I love Natura. I think what they do is really smart. It's really responsible. It's also quality led, which I think is something that's sacrificed a lot in the day of Amazon, where it's all about efficiency, but not about quality. So I think for me, I really look to them as they inspire. They also are obsessed with quality, obsessed with sustainability and obsessed with like living your best possible life. So is it my favorite e-com brand in the world? I, I don't know if I would say that, but it's definitely one I draw inspiration on for Flowerbox. And it's also acknowledgement. You can be very big and all of those things at the same time. So it's hard to 
become something if you can't see other examples. And then as far as slick, I wouldn't say they're the slickest e-com experience. I think they're definitely not. Okado, I'm just obsessed with how easy it makes it to feed a family of five. At literally, you know, regularly. I think Matches and Net-A-Porter do an exceptional job of the editorialization of clothes and, and how they inspire you to wear them and buy them and, you know, live your best life again. So I feel like we're trying to do a similar thing with flowers. Yeah, definitely. I, I think you've highlighted some really interesting examples there. And actually, I haven't looked at the Natura website for a while. So that's what I'm going to be doing in a moment. And we also asked them at the same time, if you could, um, if you could ask the next person on this podcast one question, any question to do with e-commerce, what, what would you like the answer to right now? How do you get the tech right and to keep up with the ideas? I think that's such a challenge is it in-house? Is it out-house? Everyone who has it in-house is like, I'm so jealous for you that you have, in, you're working with an agency. Everyone who works with an agency is like, oh my God, to bring it in-house. And no one of any sort of tech company that I know is ever like, wow, we've really, we're really nailing this. I feel like it's always a pain point. So how do you get tech right? There's my question. That's a very good question. And um, keep it moving you know, keep it, how does it, how do you help it sort of keep pace with the business and the growth? And keep it evolving. Absolutely. Because sometimes a business can only take you so far and then you've got to find another one and another one. And exactly. In-house, you know, can only take you so far sometimes. So keep, and keeping up with not just your ideas, Whitney, but also the brand itself, I imagine keeps your COO very, very busy. And the growth, you know, adding on, different territories, adding on different products. Uh, there's just, we're constantly growing. So it's, it's never finished. Honestly, thank you ever so much for, for coming on today. It's been really, really interesting to hear, you know, so many entrepreneurs come on and talk about their journey, but actually they don't necessarily mention how they managed to take the gap, the jump truly. Because let's be honest, most entrepreneurs have a comfortable salary in a certain life before they take the leap. It's, it's bold. It's a bold job taking that leap so amazing that you've done it and I know you're not where you want to be yet but Flowerbox is certainly going in the right direction oh that's so kind that is just the Monday Tuesday motivation I needed so thank you so much and thanks so much for having me and, and taking the time to chat <laughs>